0: credit approval terms apply
1: building a portfolio with fidelity basket portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich it's as simple as picking your stocks and etfs sort of like your meats and other topics and managing it as one big juicy investment mm, now that's pretty good learn more at fidelity.com baskets Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokers Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC.
0: Oh, hey, it's that lady who wants to sample three gelatos, but can only bear to make the gelato person give her two samples and then just buys the flavor that she always gets. Allie Ward, back with another episode of Ologies. Okay, so speaking of eating, actually, you're about to change the way you look at food. And the future. So finally, the power to change the planet. It's in your hands, dog. And it's in your smoothies. It's in your mouths. Get ready for some bug science, some human history. And some dare I say hope. But before hope comes business. And this is the part where I thank patrons at patreon.com slash ologies for making this show possible, which has its challenges, but I love making it. Uh, thank you to everyone getting merch at ologiesmerch.com. Thanks to everyone hitting that subscribe button. Just mash it up. And thanks for rating the podcast, even leaving reviews that you know that I read in the dark with a candle and a monocle. And I softly weep because y'all are so nice. So I read you one each week for proof. This week's Dre J. Lane says, I've been binging on this lovely podcast. It's like tapas, but if the tapas were a taste of all the different ologies that you've ever wondered about or never knew existed. Tapas made of bugs, for this episode at least. Okay, entomophagy, anthropology. Let's just get the heck into it. So entomon in Greek means insect phage means to eat, and anthropology, of course, is the study of human peoples. So I'm so stoked about this episode, and this ologist, perhaps the leading expert on planet Earth about this topic... She got her bachelor's at Northern Illinois University in anthropology. She got a master's and a Ph.D. in anthropology at University of Michigan, and she's an assistant professor of anthropology at Wayne State University in Detroit. She wrote the literal book about humans eating bugs. It's titled Edible Insects and Human Evolution. Not only does she speak at seminars, She organizes the seminars. I first saw a video of hers where she referred to eating insects as just eating very tiny animals, and I was just charmed, and I needed to make her my friend. So she came by my hotel room one morning when I was last in Detroit, and we had a lovely time chatting about gateway bugs, grasshopper tacos, abandoning learned cultural fears, unctuous scorpions, termite farts, food security concerns, and spider bullshit. So open up and say ants for entomophagy anthropologist, Dr. Julie Lesnick. Okay, cool. So here is your microphone. Right? Can you hang on to it? Yep. Yep. You hang on to it and just kind of talk right into all it. All right. I can do that. And so we were emailing about this. You you would be an entomophagy anthropologist? That's what I yeah. I yes. um
2: yeah, so I'm an anthropologist, and but uh, there's so many subfields of anthropology, and I focus mostly on biological anthropology. But what I do instead is I really focus on insects as food, and I come to it from all different anthropological angles. And so I decided sort of the best thing to do is just kind of name it my own thing. And it's Entomophagy Anthropology is the name of my website. Um, And so that's really kind of how I identify myself
0: is that I study edible insects from every anthropological perspective. Do you guys all know each other? People who study Entomophagy Anthropology, is it kind of like a, a clique of people who all really study it at a high level? they're So I would
2: say that I'm probably the only like truly entomophagy anthropologist, entomophagist anthropologist. Uh Um, There's a lot of people who study kind of insects as a food source, like in primates or for people but they tend to just study it as one component of like the bigger picture. So what is food for this population and then bugs are part of it. So there are people who have definitely written on insects as food before and I'm far from the first but I'm the first to really dive into it to this detail. That's so exciting.
0: (laughs) How do you describe this at cocktail parties? So I was like, Julie, what? so what do you do? <laughs> what do I do?
2: <laughs> um, that's funny. I, I generally say, well, it's really funny because it really depends on who I'm with mm-hmm. and if I'm trying to impress them. <laughs> And and what I think their kind of comfort level with different sciences are, um, because my background's really in archaeology. I came into this through tool use, oh. and so then understanding how early hominids use tools, so that like you and so understanding tools really makes me an archaeologist. So if I'm trying to sound really cool, I'll be like I'm an archaeologist. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm trying to sound really smart, I'll say I'm a biological
1: anthropologist,
2: because um, nobody knows what that is, and and then and then. Um, and then And if I think that I can use the word evolution without having issues, I will I will say I say the evolution of the human diet and I focus primarily on insects. So it's really hard. I have to read the room. And um, I do a lot of public communication. And I think almost this. Very multifaceted background that I have and needing to read the room and figure out what to tell people I do has been sort of the first step in public communication, being able to know what pitch, what cell, what description is going to work in a particular crowd. Um, and so I've been doing that for 10 years trying to explain what I do. and so I think it was
0: pretty easy to then just kind of take it to bigger audiences. And so how long ago did you go from studying tool use to studying bugs? And was there a light bulb moment where you were like, you know what? So
2: I started studying tool, tools first. So I went, I was an archaeologist as an undergrad. I worked in Europe just because that's where field schools that I could get onto were. Um, and then in a, going into graduate school, I had this very like philosophical existential moment of like, as archaeologists, we dig up garbage all the time. I and mean, that's essentially what we do. It's what's left behind. And I was like, why do we have garbage? <laughs> that was like, it was very existential. But it was, I really wanted, um, I I used to, this is going to sound like a complete tangent, but I used to train horses. And so animal behavior and stuff was always very natural to me. I've always been an animal person. And so at some point I kind of wanted to to relate humans back to that biological being that we are as opposed to the sort of like elevated God that we pretend we are sometimes. And so that was really the driving question for me going into grad school. And so I kind of wanted to study sort of the pretty much the origins of the genus homo and like, when did brain size expand and when did we start having the ability to think these bigger questions? And so it was my application was so existential. It was really funny. (laughs) And um, but I was like, but the one thing I can do is look, I can look at how tools get more complex. You know, that is the one thing in the archaeological record that I could use. Uh, And so then it just became available to me to study these bone tools that are from South Africa that were demonstrated to um, be have been used to dig into termite mounds. So researchers had done experiments on sort of their own bone fragments to match the, to find the best match for the wear pattern on these ancient tools that are about 1.7 million years old oh my God. and their conclusion was termite mounts so this came out right before I started grad school and so while I was in grad school and I had no idea what I was going to do my advisor was wonderful he he um, he's very similar to me and is interested in kind of everything. And so he's like, we'll just throw a bunch of things at you and see what sticks. You know, like, clearly this existential question, why do we have garbage? And you need a, you need to narrow this down a little,
0: but we'll give you the time. So Julie had the chance to go to South Africa, and she was looking at tools used to dig into termite mounds. And then because of her love of animals, it got her interested in chimpanzee behavior around termite mounds. She's like, What is happening with primates and termites? Primates, termites. Let's get into it. I like to imagine her standing on termite mound in khaki shorts and dusty field boots, just pumped as hell, and then sprinting into a library, maybe.
2: But the funny thing is, is in in reading it and reading all the work, all the work, it was like, well, hominids probably ate termites. And I was like, Well, what termites? So I started thinking about it and I was like started looking into it, and there's eighty-five genera of termites in sub-Saharan Africa what? Yeah, they're crazy diverse. And then they eat a bunch of different things. So we think of them as eating wood, but they can eat grass, they can eat soil. And then they're social insects, so they have a caste system. So if you eat the queen, that's different than eating the soldier, which is different than eating the worker. So this whole like hominids ate termites just didn't sit well with me. I was like, that's like being like hominids ate food. Yeah. You know, like it didn't tell us really anything. And so that's really where my dissertation went off in an angle I never expected was to learn more about termites and reconstruct you know what I thought which termite genus were hominids eating. So that was my dissertation. Um, and so it all kind of made sense to me because I wanted to study brain size and you need to understand tools and food in order to understand brain size. So it took this turn towards termites that might seem like it came out of nowhere. But for me, it made sense at the time. Did you like bugs before this? I just liked nature. Mm-hmm. I was not necessarily a bug lover. Um but I think about it, and my mom was raised me to like if there's a bug in the house, you get a, a glass and a postcard and you take the bug outside. Um, and so I definitely had a respect for them that I didn't realize was unique um, until I started studying them. And then termites are just fascinating. I mean, they're the social behavior of them, they, they communicate through pheromones. They, they're just they were just, spectacularly wonderful to just sit there and read about. It was just something new. And I think that was a big thing was I was studying human evolution. So now to see evolution on a totally different scale. I mean, it just it it happens so much faster because, you know, generation time so much smaller and they get so specialized. And the termites that chimps eat and the ones I focus the most on are fungus farmers? Oh so my they, god. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: they have, how so do they have their lives together know, so well to I farm? Know. They're
2: architects, right? So they build these nests so that the heat and everything can be regulated. It has chimneys. So they're architects. And then inside that structure, they have a symbiotic relationship with fungus. So the termites don't even eat their own food. They harvest food, bring it into the fungus that digests it partially, and then the termites eat the byproduct. I mean, they're just endlessly fascinating. I can't keep a houseplant alive. <laughs>
0: right. How are they
2: doing this? I know. They're so much better than us. Like they're much more talented. <laughs> and how
0: how many termites would an ancient hominid have to eat in order to be healthy and and have a enough protein and and really be satisfied?
2: Yeah. Uh, so I think it probably works out to. I think I did some calculations where I said if they're eating a hundred grams of termites, they'd be getting a really significant portion of the protein that they need in their diet.
0: Quick question. How many termites is 100 grams of termites? I had to look this up because one, I live in metrically challenged America. And two, who would know this? Probably not even termites. So the average weight of a fresh termite is around two milligrams. And of course, this varies species to species, worker to worker. But it would mean 100 grams of termites is about... 50,000 termites and the average colony size looked it up starts at around 60,000 but it can go up into the millions So termite fun fact they outweigh humans on planet earth by about a hundred million tons So termites they roll deep and probably every termite in the world has more friends than you or me
2: And I think that based on some observations from chimps, sitting at a termite mound for an hour and sitting there kind of fishing and pulling them out, that you could get about that much. I mean, it's a concentrated hour. It has to be probably a good active mound for that day. Um, But, yeah, you can get quite a bit with just a little bit of effort. On my door, I'd hang a sign gone fishing.
0: And what kind of tools do chimps use they typically do they just dip a stick in there kind of like it's a corn dog batter or what (laughs)
2: right uh chimps they it's amazing that actually
0: how um refined the tools are so some chimps will use like a long blade of grass or a stick that they strip of leaves with their teeth and just like there are regional cooking trends Like how an iced oat milk lavender vanilla latte might be easier to come by in L.A. than maybe Oklahoma, which hosts a festival dedicated to eating bull testicles. Different chimp populations have different strategies and perhaps preferences.
2: But some run it through their premolars so it shreds. Oh. And then that one blade of grass turns into a lot of basic hair, basically hairs, which increases the surface area, which means more termites can attach to it.
0: Oh, my God. Like a feather duster. Yes. Kind of, right. Yeah.
2: And they, so, yeah, the more. So it's like a mini broom. So the termites they're going after with this method are the termite soldiers. And again, these are the macrotermies termites. And so macrotermies have more of a mechanical defense. So the soldiers have pinchers. And because the soldiers don't reproduce, they're actually a dispensable cast. So the pinchers are pretty unilateral, like they bite and they don't let go. So that's why they can then drag them out of the mound because the soldier does its job at it Tacks the breach in the mound and then doesn't let go, and the chimps can drag them up. Oh, and so boned, uh, by, boned by your own defense. Yes, man. yeah. Oh. So chimps have like spectacularly like worked around this. And so what people do is they dig a hole into the mound and, and dip a whole broom in, and it might just be from the vegetation, like grab handfuls of grass, and so it increases the surface area. So you just get all these termites out in one big dip. And so that's basically what the chimps are doing when they're running that grass through their teeth and. and fraying it is so they're increasing the surface area
0: and how long did you study this before you like dipped into a mound and like let's pull up a chair
2: so i let's see so i started grad school in 2004 and it was 2008 that i was doing my dissertation field work um my phd advisor told me that i was not allowed to come home from africa without being able to tell him what a termite tastes like <laughs> and i was not excited about this i was squeamish um i think i got out of it one year i think he told me that in 2007 and i came home without doing it but i'd also gotten malaria in 2007 so i was like i was a little scared of insect-borne illnesses um i didn't feel like eating a termite um and it was just that's just my justifications and post rationale i just didn't want to eat a termite and you know I made an excuse did you so, get a pass though so in 2008 i was not allowed to come home without oh my so god malaria I, I ate one termite off the like stick straight out of the mound bit it right away and it just tasted like dirt you know like i was all like squeamish like oh that was gonna be um it tastes like dirt because there's probably more dirt than termite in yeah it really it wasn't until 2014 i'd say that i've like started eating bugs yeah
0: oh so relatively recently, yeah. so it took you another like six years yeah. to really be like, okay,
2: all right, I'm yeah. studying it. Yeah. It, uh, so I was totally just studying it for academic purposes, you know, like this was not something I thought was going to save the world. And, and in doing, you know, fortunately for, you know, time in my dissertation, I had the internet, I could Google things and I would Google edible insects or edible termites. And I would see things come up um, about people who were saying insects were a sustainable you know, future of the food. But all of the kind of clips and everything were kind of facetious, almost like it was a lot of times like somebody who was serious about it. But then the reporter was kind of mocking it. I can't. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. I'm sorry. I can't do it. So that was sort of my first introduction into it. And so, of course, like the reporter was telling me these people were crazy. So, of course, I thought they were crazy, you know, mm -hmm. and So I never really gave much more thought to it, and then in 2013, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization came out with a big statement, saying, like, detailing the benefits of insects as food. Saying if we need to feed this growing population, the 10 billion that we're supposed to have by 2050, we need to start rethinking food. And so they offered insects, you know, as a as an option, and it got a lot of media attention. And I was at that time already. Uh, preparing my book, I was in talks with editors about a book on edible insects and human evolution. I was just going to kind of reconstruct the insect portion of the hominid diets. And I was really going to focus on the female forager in hominids. Um, and then this UN statement came out and I was like, oh, well, that I can now frame this. I can now this now matters like. And it came out and I saw also on the statement that there wasn't a social scientist. So it was entomologists and agricultural scientists and people that work for the UN and, you know, wonderful, amazing, smart people. But there was very little appreciation to kind of like the cultural sensitivities of this and why don't we eat bugs here? And that's that's really rooted in a, a deep colonial history. And and so I realized that there was. I knew a lot about edible insects. I was an anthropologist. I had a lot I could offer this conversation. And so I stepped up and I started going to conferences and I started reaching out to these people. Um, I hosted my own conference. I brought everybody to Detroit in 2016 for the first U.S.-based conference
0: dedicated entirely to Insects as Food. So quick aside, some seminars at last year's Insects as Food conference include Ethics for Insect Eaters, Eating Insects in Western Culture, a unique approach, and my favorite, one that I would very much like to crash in the future, quote, what's hoppin'? Impact of edible cricket consumption on gut microbiota in healthy adults, a double-blind randomized crossover trial. If you ever lament that Americans only care about scandalous tweets and cable programs featuring fights over trays of champagne, just remember somewhere, maybe in a Detroit ballroom, people are gathered to save the future One cricket-studded scone at a time.
2: And so, yeah, so that statement was really that sort of moment of calling that I was like, I I can do so much more than what I'm
0: doing. Did you kind of get butterflies in that moment? No pun intended. (laughs) Like realizing like, oh, there's this, this is my perfect in for this. I'm going to be the person that does
2: this. And so at first I just saw it as a strategy, like, oh, maybe I'll get a job because there's people are interested in bugs. It was my first thoughts. And then it was became, then it became my crusade. Then I was hundred percent on board. And then this is what I'm meant to do. And now I'm like, everybody needs to make sure their work matters and start from the beginning. When you come up with your project, figure out how you can take it out to the world and to the communities and show that it matters. So it it's important to understand early hominids. And knowing where we came from is really cool and really fun. And people love to know about it. But the best way to tell them about it is if we can kind of sneak it into a climate change discussion or a food security discussion or a you know, population movement discussion, all of these things that really matter today. Like If we can
0: frame these questions that, then people will hear us more. Mm-hmm. And now, as an anthropologist, walk me through in what cultures it's not okay to eat bugs? Because I feel like it's it's really inverse. So there are more people on Earth who eat bugs than who don't, right? So, or maybe yes, not. Yes and no. Like,
2: it's so hard. It's hard to calculate the numbers. Okay. Um, but a lot of people eat bugs. More countries have cultures that eat insects than countries that have zero insect consumption. Um, and so the people who don't eat bugs are really the Western the Western world, in air quotes. Because mm-hmm. um, Western is really hard to define. But basically, Western is Europe, and then the areas around the world that's been continually impacted through you know colonization and continual migration. So that leaves us to um, the United States and Canada, especially. But then Australia and New Zealand can get, get kind of designated as Western. But countries like Mexico and South Africa that had European colonization and some European migration since, we don't always call them Western, but the cities are Western. If you look at Mexico and South Africa, they don't eat bugs in the cities. And it's a rural thing. So it's in the cities that kind of got Westernized and globalized and kind of play on that economic and political scale. Um, But then the rural areas have been much more where the traditional foods have lingered. And it's all just... It's all unique, the colonial history of each of those countries. Um, and so, yeah, so it's Western. It's a very Western idea to not eat bugs. And so that was kind of where my research took a turn. And I wasn't expecting this. I wanted to understand that more. And the first thing I thought was, well, if Western is stemmed in Europe, and I was thinking kind of, Human evolution and the first hominids in Europe or, you know, at least the Neanderthals who, you know, were well established in Europe. It's like, okay, that's the Pleistocene. That's the ice age. They probably weren't eating bugs. And so if we trace our ancestry in Europe all the way back to Neanderthals, the
0: very first occupants were not eating bugs. Ooh, I have never thought about this. This is exciting.
2: And so the way you make life for yourself in these northern latitudes is that you have to eat meat because we can't eat the bark off the trees or the dead grass under the snow, but you can eat the deer that can eat those things.
0: Were they not eating bugs because it was too chilly for bugs or why weren't they? Both. I think
2: in for the majority of the time, they wouldn't have been available. Like if you think of snowy you know, glaciated Europe um, in the lower end of their range, you know, below the glacial cover or in the seasons and the summers, there might've been insects available, like a swarm of locusts that came through. Locust. They might've appreciated like a reprieve from needing to hunt that day. Cause there was locusts, but at the same time, they would have been nutritionally redundant because insects are animal foods. They offer us pretty much all the same things meat does. So, it pro- like if Neanderthals were super great at hunting, the insects wouldn't have necessarily offered them much. And so I, I and then I look through European history and there's, there are instances of people writing about eating insects in Europe, but it wasn't very widespread. Um, and so that just started making me think that it's a latitude, it's an environment thing. And so just with basic statistics of there's this great, database of number of insect species consumed per country. And that came out with the UN statement. And so I just used that. And, you know, using basic statistics, I was able to show that insect consumption follows latitude. It is much more tropical uh, resource. And kind of as you leave to higher latitudes, insect consumption reduces. Oh, my God. Yes.
0: So it's colder, fewer bugs chilling on branches like, hello, I am a tiny, crunchy hot dog for you. So people eat fewer bugs, that gets passed down for generations. So simple. This is so simple, but it blew my mind.
2: So there's a very strong environmental signal, but that doesn't say why we hate insects, right? Just because like... You you're not in the right environment for them and you don't eat them. We shouldn't have the like super strong negative responses that we do. And so then I started thinking about, okay, well, if you're in Europe and you don't eat bugs and then Christopher Columbus travels to the Caribbean and travels across the latitudes in a way that's never been done before and ends up in the tropical islands and sees insect eating, what's the response? And so I was like, I wonder if there's anything in letters like is there any journals or letters? Oh, my gosh. They are just like the there is a, a. a companion of Columbus, who's like, they're beasts for eating bugs. I can't imagine anything more beast like than these people who eat the grubs and the spiders and the. I- so, just these immediate negative reactions that that's what then goes back to Europe, immediately othering this population, yeah. which they needed to do and wanted to do because they wanted to take their land and, and enslave these people to take care of their plantations. So, it was almost like. I read it as like propaganda. Like yeah. the more we can talk about these people like beasts, the more we can treat them like beasts of burden is how these letters came across to me. Wow.
0: Christopher Columbus. What a hater. Right. I mean, like ugh. <laughs> just Like
2: every Columbus day, I'm just like, right. This is so awful.
0: So side note, kind of like sending food back because it has shards of glass in it. Columbus Day has been swapped out in many cities and states for Indigenous People's Day. Now, this is in part due to the efforts of Lynn Smokey Hart, who is an African-American and Lakota civil rights activist and a rodeo hero of South Dakota, who lobbied for his state to change the focus of the holiday, as well as to recognize Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Now, did I Google him and watch a trailer for his documentary, Just Bucking Crazy, and then find and follow him on Facebook? I sure did and so can you. He seems cool as hell. Anyway, Julie's research about why some cultures are freaked out by bugs continued.
2: So then I was like looking into psychological disgust and basically like a two-year-old will put anything in their mouth. Like we have to teach kids what's sanitary, what's gross, what's disgusting. But then when we teach it to them while their brains are developing, it then becomes programmed. Like they grow up to think that garbage is gross and toilets are gross. And so if we go, ew, don't put that bug in your mouth, they think bugs are gross. And so we can take sort of our cultural stigmas and turn them into real disgust mechanisms if we train them to our kids at young ages. So for me, getting over this is going to be a generational change. It's going to be changing our attitudes towards kids putting a bug in their mouth and being like, no, 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 not that bug. That one's dirty. Let me go get you some crickets that uh-huh. were farmed at a facility just for human consumption. You know? <laughs> so that's sort of the change I think that needs to happen for this to really take off. How often do you have to cite the change in attitudes toward lobster? Your work, right? I, you know, oddly, I don't. Maybe it it might be like my hipster thing. Like, I'm not going to cite the thing that everybody else cites.
0: (laughs) Okay, I'll take the hit. I'll be the uncool one to throw this in. But lobster, which, by the way, gets its name from the old English word for spider, used to be food for the poor just a shameful dish. So lobster would wash up on New England shores in piles, sometimes two feet deep. And it was fed to orphans and indentured servants. There was even a law that prisoners shouldn't be subjected to it more than a few times a week. Anything more would be torture. And then the railroads came along in the mid 1800s. See the pharaoh equinology episode. And they figured. These idiots out West, they don't know that this is trash food. Let's pretend it's fancy. And so we out West loved it so dang tootin' much that lobster became more scarce. We were just gobbling it up. So the price went up, and now eating these scavenging sea bugs is still a marker of just luxury. So soon, this will be the fate of cricket burritos.
2: What also gets cited a lot is sushi, actually. So so lobster is great. But the thing is, is people, because we tend to shell the lobster, they still don't associate it with a large arthropod. But then now it's reached such an elite status that now they forgive it when it is a full lobster. And but it is amazing how we can just have one opinion about something that's huge and stares at you when it's on the plate. A lobster is an excellent choice. But the better the thing that we do talk about a lot is sushi because raw fish was disgusting and but we got over it and it took kind of hiding that raw fish in the the rice, like in a sushi roll. And before even getting to the raw fish, using avocado that had a similar texture using the California roll. Um, And so grinding up crickets or mealworms into a powder that you can't see the eyes, you can't see the legs, you don't get legs stuck in your teeth. Uh You can put it in things like protein bars or chips or cookies, or just put a scoop in a smoothie, Um, making it familiar, making it foods we already eat, making it fit our lifestyles. And I think that's really the way that this is going to to kind of take hold here in the United States.
0: Some other bugs that might make an appearance on menus of the future, beetles, caterpillars, bees, dead, of course, locusts, grasshoppers, stink bugs, and perhaps even flies. Those that feed on cheese taste like cheese. Hmm? Yeah? Your old dadward right here has eaten grasshopper tacos, graciously prepared by lepidopterologist Phil Torres. Plus, a whole menu of other bugs, which we'll get to later. Just admit it. You're intrigued. You know, when it comes to getting Americans in the westernized world to be on board with crickets, do you think that with climate change being such a pickle, to put it mildly, do you think that's what's going to push people over to try things? I, You know, I'd hope so, but actually I think... What we're seeing now, so the
2: wonderful thing is, I mean, gosh, now 2013 was five years ago. So we have five years of people being really excited about this stuff. So I'm not the only one like I have this, like I had 200 people at my conference in 2016. So there are a lot of us working on this. And the thing that we're seeing, I think a lot of the data is coming out, is telling people it's environmentally friendly is not getting us anywhere.
0: Really? Yeah. I thought that would be such you would. a draw. You'd think so. I mean, I ate a cricket bar in the airport a couple weeks ago, <laughs> and I was like, you know what? It's better. It's better than eating yeah. beef jerky. And I think, and it's not that it's
2: not drawing some people in, but it's just not drawing in the numbers that are going to make the change. Okay. And so I, and and there's been a lot of people saying this since day one with all of this, and it, and I absolutely believe it is to be true. Is that what needs to happen? Is they just need to be so delicious that people need it. Like, they need to try that whatever cricket thing. Delicious. And that requires having chefs and food scientists and everybody on board to experiment and come up with these amazing, delicious things. Um, Because... My opinion: No protein bar is really that good. Like we eat them. Yeah, that's a like, good point. <laughs> like we eat them because we have to. It's convenient. It gets us the protein we need right after a workout, or we forgot to eat. They, they, you have protein bars that taste better than others, but protein—they're not candy bars. They're not Snickers. No, no. they're just not. <laughs> and so, so those aren't gonna change the world. I think they're a wonderful opportunity. I think it—it's great that they're there. But what we need is. I don't know, just that thing that everybody must have because it tastes so good,
0: like popcorn crickets or something. Yeah, Deep uh,
2: yeah, something. exactly. Like make it unhealthy, yeah, just to get it on board and get people you because know, crickets they do have their own unique flavor. I mean, for the most part, most animal proteins we just cover it up with seasoning and flavor, anyways. But there is a flavor
0: in crickets that's unfamiliar. So according to Bug Chef Ali Moore, not to be confused with. Me, Allie Ward. Crickets taste like popcorn or nuts. And Allie's site, Buggable, B-U-G-I-B-L-E.com, has a whole list of bugs and their flavors. She also throws bug and wine pairings and insect dinners. So you can find a link on Buggable.com to her chef site. She is a human delight, this Allie Moore. And having eaten her bugs, she's a great chef. So what are some beginner bug eater strategies?
2: And so finding that deep fried thing that gets everybody on board and gets you more familiar with that flavor. And then you're more willing to use that flavor in other areas of your life.
0: And in terms of the environmental impact, if that is motivating, you say, maybe you're trying to cut down on your red meat consumption, your factory farming, and you want to go, as you said in one of your talks, to eating tiny animals (laughs) as opposed to (laughs) bigger animals. I love that you referred to them as tiny animals because you're like, yeah, they are just They're just animals. They're just very tiny animals. Um, But if you were to try to sketch out the difference between eating 100 grams of insects versus 100 grams of meat and the difference environmentally, like, what are we talking? Oh, my gosh. Uh, So... I always like
2: to, my my. I use this, maybe this is my Detroiter in me, um, actually I think it was my husband who's from Detroit um, uh-huh. who who gave me this metaphor originally, is uh, thinking about the scale of the different livestock, so cows to pigs to chickens to insects, and they're very similar to like the fuel efficiency of different vehicles on the road, so uh-huh. like cows are your your very large trucks that are just eating up resources and you're not, like the turnover on that is awful. And then pigs might be your SUV and then, you know, chickens might be your sedan and then crickets are your smart car. Oh my God. Um, and so it is everything scales with size. So the smaller you get, the more efficient those animals are at converting the feed you give them to converting that to energy and
0: nutrients for us. Oh, my God. So I'm going to repeat that because it's my podcast. I can do whatever I want. And also because it's important.
2: And so it is. Everything scales with size. So the smaller you get, the more efficient those animals are at converting the feed you give them to converting that to energy and nutrients for us.
0: Y'all, boom. We can't each drive a Mack truck around town to run errands. It's not a good look. So crickets and insects are at the absolute smallest end of that scale. The most striking
2: numbers, the one I definitely have in my head, is the thousands of liters of water it takes to cultivate traditionally raised livestock. And then insects are 50 liters of water. Oh, my God.
0: So according to one cricket retailer, Chirps Chips, one pound of beef takes 2,000 gallons of water to produce. A pound of whey protein, 1,000 gallons. One pound of lentils, 700 gallons of water. A pound of eggs takes about 375 gallons of water to make. Soy, 215 gallons of water per pound. But a pound of crickets? Are you ready for this? I don't think you are. One gallon of water for a pound of crickets.
1: Just one? Just one.
0: Of course, every farm is a little different. Those numbers are broad. But if we start to dress in tuxes and just belly up to all-you-can-eat cricket buffets will it stay sustainable when we scale up crickets to the level of producing
2: chickens how efficient are they going to be and that is an important question we need to ask and you know the people are working on but um but just in general just in them their physiology as biological beings is more efficient than any of the
0: other livestock we we eat is there any flim flam about eating bugs that you would want to debunk first and foremost
2: Disease vectors is one. Um, People always think that they carry diseases, and they, they don't unless they're exposed to them. When I offer insects to people, or the insects I eat are produced at facilities just for human consumption. So those facilities are clean to the standards of anything, whether you are processing cheese or vegetables or meat. you know There's a certain standard of cleanliness that we have to have in our food production facilities. And so as long as you get your insects from there, You don't have the contaminants. And so as opposed to if you're wild foraging insects, you don't know where they've been. You know, you don't know what runoff they went through or any of the kind of contaminants they could have walked through. But when they're produced at a facility for human consumption, they are there is nothing. There is no vector in the insect themselves. And so they're not exposed to any of our pathogens. If they're then they're completely safe for us. So that's one of the things that I think is I think people think of them as disease salient as as vectors. And they're really not. So we have much more issues with romaine lettuce, for instance, yeah. than we do with crickets. <laughs> oh, romaine lettuce on so <laughs> It's true, though. It's so, yeah. And that is. And that's the and the sad thing is, is it's like, OK, we're scared of romaine or spinach. It's always spinach. Um, but it's all just coming from the pigs. It's runoff from the livestock going into those fields. That's where the contamination coming or, or from cows. Um, and so it's it's our meat that we're eating that's producing that. It's not the lettuce's fault. Um, and crickets a- aren't producing that. Yeah, crickets,
0: there's not just rivers of cricket no. shit going no. into no. fields. No, <laughs> and the
2: thing, like, there's so, they produce such, like, produces, like, fine powdery, it's called frass. P.S.
0: Frass is bug shit, which sounds so cute. And it looks just like sand or tiny seeds. And so it's it's easy to deal with. It's a
2: great fertilizer. You know, it's not that disgusting, toxic stream of shit running down yeah. the road, you know? So <laughs> And um what
0: about cockroach milk? I'm fascinated
2: I'm by fascinated. this. I'm fascinated. I uh I've not had it. Okay. Um I don't even know if I could have it. I don't even know where to get it.
0: I don't know. Okay. I looked this up and you can't buy it at Whole Foods or anywhere yet. But it's a crystalline substance. It's produced by Mama Pacific Beetle Cockroaches and it has Triple the nutrition that cow milk has by weight, and it looks like silver glitter. According to one researcher, it tastes like any other milk, but once again, cockroach milk, the future.
2: But it, to me, it was just fascinating. It doesn't bother me at all. Like, I want to try it. Um, it, it reminds me, so in, um, uh, like So in the Bible, when they're talking about manna from heaven and it's associated with insects, they're not eating the insects themselves. They're eating a secretion. The lo- So the locusts secrete like a sugary substance. And so that is thought to be sort of in translations, that is thought to be the manna. And so when I read about this cockroach milk, I was like, oh, they're producing a sugary excretion, like it's manna. Um, and so it kind of made me excited to think about it. And then also the other thing is that, Now, I could be wrong. It's been a while since I read the the paper about this cockroach milk, but it is, it's a sugary secretion that I believe the cockroach mother uses to feed her young like i'm pretty sure it's a food source um because there's why else would she be producing a sugary secretion like it made cockroaches more relatable because mom is taking care of her kids in a way that we do and that our mammal relatives do and so it it actually endeared cockroaches much oh. more to me than um than they had than I had before when I started thinking about cockroach
0: milk I mean it's just funny that we eat cheese all the time for okay. so many different mammals but right. then the idea of like oh god no, All right, just <laughs> no. What, what we will eat the secretions of <laughs> varies so much give me a glass of milk yeah without even thinking about it yeah. <laughs> but um so what insects have you personally eaten so- Um, And how were they? They, Oh, man. I mean, I've had
2: crickets and mealworms the most because that's what's farmed here in the U.S. I've had a lot of termites, which are my favorite. Um, But so one, they're my favorite because I've had them the freshest besides live from the mound. I've had them like (laughs) straight from the mound, boiled for a minute, salted, consumed. And they tasted just like popcorn. It was delicious. Um, But I always like to put this little like asterisk caveat is that. Termites are kind of like mini cows, and they produce a lot of methane. And so for as delicious as termites are, I really do not ever want to see them scaled and produced on a large like scaled production for human consumption, because we're just going to run into the same greenhouse gas issues that we do with cows. Why are they so farty? It's because of digesting just cellulose dense, yeah. So it's like the when you break down just you know um, really dense cellulose matter, whether it's wood or grass, that's what cows are doing. And so it just takes so many levels of digestion and the symbiotic relationships with the bacteria that breaks it down. So it's really the bacteria and the guts that are you know creating the gases. Um, so yeah, they, they have a very similar diet to cows, and so they produce a very similar oh byproduct. My God. Yeah. So maybe those would be at the bottom of your bug list. Yeah. So it's like they're delicious, but like get them in a marketplace when you're traveling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had surprisingly I had a June bug I had June bugs. Really? And now uh, June bugs are creepy because like, they're they like hit you in the head and they're basically like a little flying helmet. Like they're just <laughs> solid. Right. But they were, it was a nice crunch to eat. Actually, it was a very pleasant crunch. You eat the shell? Yeah, they were whole. Yeah. OK. It's yeah. like a soft shell crab. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's yeah, like a exactly. spider roll. Yeah, and it, and that's the other thing is, um, I thinking of chitin of the exoskeleton as animal fiber. Like we're kind of obsessed with fiber in our diets. Um because it kind of fills us up without giving us excess calories and it keeps our digestive systems moving. Like if a a large cat is eating a gazelle, it's the bone and the cartilage and that's fiber for them. Like the same thing that cellulose is in our diet is fiber, bones and everything is fiber for these carnivores. And so it started making me think of exoskeletons as animal fiber, like It's a beneficial part of the diet. Um, And so how much of it, we, we do have chitinase in our system. We do have the genes to produce chitinase, which is the enzyme necessary to break down chitin. We don't really have a great idea of how much energy we can extract from it. And so I think for a long time I was like, oh, we don't really know. Maybe insects aren't as good as we thought because maybe we're not getting as much protein or energy because we don't know how much chitin we can break down. And then I started thinking about am like, it doesn't matter how much chitin we can break down. We need it, the fiber anyways. Mm-hmm. Like it's still a useful resource
0: um, to have that. So yeah, so June bugs, great source of fiber. <laughs> what about uh, like silkworms or I'm trying to think the things I've eaten... I've eaten water bugs. Oh, I've not had a giant water bug. Those are tough. Uh, Yeah. Those were a little tough. It was just the meat of it, and it was cold, but it tasted a little bit like bananas. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Scorpions tasted like amaretto. They tasted like marzipan to me.
2: Oh, yeah. Scorpions have a very weird... Like a sharpness to them too like uh i don't know what the word is i don't know but like in a, we'll just say unctuous unctuous sharp <laughs> sure. let's go with unctuous but yeah they were uh scorpions were surprising to me like again a, a flavor i'd never really tasted before but amirato was pretty interesting or or to go more almond but i feel like it had like uh gosh i wish i had a word for this um like
0: a tannin, like or- a tanging
2: like a tannin or a tang that just like resonated for a while i felt like it stayed with me oh. and not in a bad way but just in a very different way
0: some other folks describe scorpions as fishy, like a little shrimpy. and again, Chef Ali Moore says they're her favorite. To her, they are beef jerky. Ask.
2: Um, silkworm, uh, is delicious. I've had it mostly in, like, soups, mm-hmm. and what I like in that, too, is if you have bubble tea, ah! <laughs> like, to me, the whole, like, silkworms in the bottom of my soup is, like, getting the bubble in my bubble tea, like, through the straw,
0: um, oh. <laughs> so that's, to me, what silkworm larva is like. So, what else has Julie, um, grubbed? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, Japanese
2: beetles, which were just less crunchy June bugs, um, to me... Oh, mopani worms are common in South Africa. I don't really like them. They're like I've eaten them because I have to. Yeah. Um, but they're kind of they're kind of weird. They're the because they're hairy caterpillars, and when you cook them, the hair kind of singes off. Mm-hmm. But it's still kind of like particulate, A yeah, bristly there, A little bristly, and the flavor. I guess they're just very grassy. Um. So, yeah, so Mopani worms is not my favorite. Definitely, I mean, like, you make them in, like, a, a tomato sauce. And so, similar with everything else, like, if everything else around it's delicious, they're just a vehicle for kind of getting the rest of that good stuff in your mouth. So, um, but the worm itself, the caterpillar itself is not my favorite.
0: Um, I hear ants, some ants can taste like lemons.
2: Yeah, and that's um, the de- the defense mechanisms. If they have the formic acid defense mechanism, then you get that real tangy, lemony kind of um, effect from them. But their eggs, escamoles is a like a delicacy in Mexico, which are ant eggs um, and ant eggs are eaten probably everywhere ants are. So I know in Southeast Asia, they eat ant eggs as well. And their eggs like it's crazy. I've only seen it in a video, but they have like a whole like frying pan of these ant eggs. And so the ant eggs themselves are only, you know, a half a centimeter in diameter, but they fry them up, and it turns into like one big omelet. Like it looks amazingly delicious, and I've had them in a dip. I've had you know, and they're just kind of savory and interesting texture, and they're delicious. I mean, the ant eggs are really one of my favorite things. But the the fact that they're eggs, like they cook
0: a lot, like eggs, like kind of blew oh, my mind. It's so nuts. Yeah. There's just a lot of teeny, teeny, yeah, teeny, tiny, teeny tiny, tiny, tiny eggs. Tiny yeah, eggs. yeah if you
2: cook enough of them, you have an omelet.
0: <laughs> so this delicacy a.k.a. escamoles, a.k.a. Mexican caviar, it's pricey because the ant eggs are they are small. Duh. And they're dug up from the root systems of agave plants. But I hear that it has the consistency of cottage cheese with a nutty, buttery finish. If given the chance, I would hella try this. Please do not tell the ants. Do you think that the way to get people to maybe curb their meat consumption is to maybe just scale smaller and smaller animals do you think or we're not going to stop eating animals we're never going to stop eating
2: meat no and and i think that the one thing in just sort of being like a reducitarian or a flexitarian or any of these new kind of words that have come out which is where i consider myself like i don't eat a lot of meat but I don't, I haven't eliminated meat from my diet, partially because I go to South Africa and they're like, here, here's some meat with a side of meat. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's harder to say I'm a vegetarian. And, and that's just the anthropologist in me. It's hard for me to be like, oh, I'm from a country where I have the luxury to choose a vegetarian option. But here, so please appease me and give me a vegetarian option. Mm-hmm. So I try really hard to make sure that I maintain meat in my diet because I just personally feel awful if I have to like ask for something special when I'm traveling. And, um, and so I've reduced my meat a lot. And I think the one thing that th- there's been this sort of resurgence of Meatless Mondays. So Meatless Mondays was, you know, World War II, just trying to get more resources available and, and um,
0: having food to send overseas.
1: But most meat going to feed the biggest army in U.S. history, a series of Meatless Tuesdays went into effect.
0: Side note, they changed it to Meatless Mondays it, because M's. They're like, oh, duh, what were we, this Meatless Tuesdays is so stupid.
2: And so now there's kind of been this resurgence of a meatless Monday. And the thing I think it does is, yes, it it reduces your consumption of meat by a little bit. But by making yourself go meatless one day, you start exploring. You're like, Mm -hmm. oh, I wonder what seitan tastes like. Or I wonder what I can do with just cheese. Or I wonder what a vegan dish might taste like. And and so it it allows you to explore because you need to find something to eat that day that doesn't have meat in it. Mm -hmm. And you can eat cheese pizza every Monday, too. But like it also does encourage you like you might get sick of that eventually and encourage you to look for something else. So I think insects are one of those something else's, you know, as you're trying to find something to just reduce your impact. Insects are a really interesting option because there's problems with our, our soy products too. You took a green bean (laughs) and you turned it into that, (laughs) or you turned it into a burger or you turned it into a, a turkey. And And it was like, how much processing and how much energy goes into that? And is that really more environmentally sustainable? Like, I know that we're not, we didn't hurt an animal, and that's great. But when we're talking about impact of resources, I'm not sure that's necessarily the best option. So an insect, to me, is all of the benefits of the animal foods. You don't have to overprocess it to get it. And ethically, crickets, they already thrive in dark and cramped spaces so to farm them you're not really changing the quality of their life that much like you are a chicken or a pig or a cow when you put them into confined spaces to raise them in large amounts um, so to me insects just represent this like the, the right balance
0: right do you know anything about the insects ability to suffer pain at all like is there ganglia smaller i'm really reaching here no that's a really
2: great question i don't have a a wonderfully eloquent answer um their central nervous system is incredibly simplified compared to a higher order organism but they will evade pain right if you if you go in there with something hot they will move away from it so they are self-protective they do so therefore they do experience pain and negative reactions to stimuli so because of that they are sentient so there are vegans for instance who will not consider insects part of their diet because you are killing lives and and it depends and it's so interesting i i've i've dabbled a little bit in sort of like food ethics philosophy and and this goes back to like when i was an undergrad so i'm kind of reaching here um but i have a colleague i want to work with on this more but um is that Some people quantify minimizing your harm by the number of individuals you affect. So to so to murder to murder one cow is one life, but it produced a ton of food. And so to eat crickets, you have to murder many many lives. And so if that's how you quantify your impact, insects are not going to be the answer for you. Oh wow! Okay. So everybody comes to it with a very different perspective. There are vegans who don't eat milk, eggs, meat and do eat insects because kind of similar what I was telling you about sort of the soy products and such is that there are ethics behind eating soy and the animals that are killed when we're farming the fields and the the amount of energy that goes into it and this is what I was talking about as an anthropologist like if we culturally stigmatize meat so much like I am a a, a fervent vegan and I'm going to criticize anybody who eats an animal product, I just criticize the world's cultures. Yeah. Right? And there's a lot of people here in the United States or around the world that that's the only nourishing food they have access to. Mm-hmm. And so to to be so demonizing of it when people need it bothers me. And so I think a lot of the kind of ento-vegans, the people that are really trying to reduce their meat consumption, but look at insects as an appealing option, are thinking along those scales, too, like that this is an important food for people. And it really ticks a lot of the boxes of minimally harming, you know, life and the environment with if you choose to eat them.
0: Right and when you kill one cow though you're not killing just one I mean think of all the microbes and mites and an- right. insects that live on the cow that right. you also just killed like you know so it's like what do you determine as a life, life? yeah, yeah right? you know there's that's- we're filled with trillions of yeah. of lives so how one determines a life might be personal but according to some models of biology and you may have learned this in school under the device Mrs. Gren a life must involve movement reproduction sensitivity, growth, respiration, excretion, and nutrition. Although NASA's Astrobiology Institute defines life as a self-sustaining chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution. So we're constantly killing things just by breathing them in and washing our hands and cooking our vegetables and not to get too existential. But we're really maybe no better than a dirty turnip only to be uprooted to death and roasted, sacrificed alongside innumerable silent tiny creatures that relied on us for life. Isn't that liberating, though? Nothing matters. Tell someone that you love them. Sign up for ukulele lessons. Live your life. Wear clothes you're not supposed to. We're all going to die. P.S. Before we do, how much protein do we need in a day? Much less than people think. Only about 50 grams a day for the average person.
2: And then you read like protein shakes and it's like 50 grams. And I was like, you don't need that. Most people
0: overconsume their protein. Yeah, I'm sure there's some brosefs out there that are like, oh my gosh. Oh, minimum 200 grams a day (laughs) Uh, by breakfast. Um, When someone is like, okay, I'm into it. I'm on board. I want to try it. What do you suggest? Do you suggest that like they go online and get cricket flour and start putting it into their cakes and Mm -hmm. such? Or
2: what do you think? I think that... Um, experimenting with the powder yourself is a great way to start. Um, it, For me, the very first thing I did was put it into a cake. So I take about one quarter of the white flour and I replace it with the cricket powder. Um, and then the cake has like a little bit nuttier of a flavor and otherwise you would not notice any different. Like side-by-side taste test, you could tell. But like just serving a piece of cake, most people generally can't tell. Surprise! <laughs> um, and so that's actually where I started. I... Wish I drank smoothies for breakfast. I don't. I've tried. I need. I. I need something to chew (laughs) in the morning. Um, But that to me, a lot of my colleagues that are very you know uh, committed insectivores um, put like a scoop of cricket protein powder into their shakes in the morning or their smoothies. Um, so that's a great way. so if you're already using a protein powder, just trying to replace it with the cricket powder instead. Um, but yeah, trying protein, if you eat protein bars, give cricket protein bars a try. My favorite product, people always ask me like how many bugs I eat, like how much do I eat bugs? And I truthfully don't like, I, let me say, I wish I drank smoothies cause then I'd eat a lot more. But the one thing I do eat regularly are chirps chips, which are tortilla chips. Uh-huh. Um, they advertise it as one cricket per chip. Oh. Um, it's so cute. It's okay, so but they're delicious. They're just heartier tortilla chips. Like they have sriracha flavor, you know, so like they're kind of, they're just tardier Doritos. Nice. Um, and yeah, so they're my favorite. That's how I eat my bugs <laughs> is, is a, a Doritos adjacent tortilla. J- <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> so sidebar, this company by total coincidence had just reached out to ask me about advertising, but I told them that they had legit just come up during the recording of an episode all about eating bugs. So just like, Don't worry about paying me. And I did ask if they could hook up any discounts for ologites. And y'all, I don't make a dime off this, but I just wanted to help them out because they seem like they're doing great stuff. And I figured you might want to try eating bugs. So if you want to try cricket chips, you can go to eatchirps.com and you can order the five ounce party size bags of their chips and you'll get 10% off using the code ologies10. So eatchirps.com. These are the chips that Julie was just talking about. So free ad for them, a few bucks savings for you, and good karma for me. Unless you count all of the cricket ghosts that will haunt my underpants. Are there any <laughs> movies or TV shows about eating bugs that you hate or love?
2: I hate or love. So there are. There have been a couple of documentaries in the last couple of years about um, insect consumption. The Gateway Bug is is really good documentary, and it's available on iTunes and Amazon.
1: 80% of our water goes to agriculture, and over half of that is watering feed for livestock. Put down everything, like put down your smartphone, everyone stop what you're doing, just stop. Let's figure out our water and our food. No, whatever you're doing is not as important as our water and our food. The thing I
2: really love about the gateway bug is it shows sort of the reality of the industry because it, it's, it's hard because to start a life as a cricket farmer, it's uncertain and it doesn't work out for everybody who tried it. And, and, but we need more like We don't have enough farming for the demand that there is like all of the farms for the most part are supplying the protein bars and the chirps chips. And so the, the straight to consumer price is really pretty high because they need their supply to go to their contracts. Um, So we do actually need more farming, but it's really hard to get off the ground um, because it is such a, an uncertain future i mean it isn't it hasn't gone mainstream yet so the gateway bug really kind of shows the reality of cricket farming like that there's all this potential and all this great opportunity um in the future but it doesn't always work out as you hope it does as you hope it would um bugs on the menus another documentary uh and so yeah i think that there's a lot out there there's um on on youtube it's called uh Like, can eating insects save the world? So you can just stream that. And that's a really good, like, he travels throughout Southeast Asia.
0: Please do not try to write that down while riding a horse or giving someone a close shave. I'm going to put all the links up at AllieWard.com slash ologies. They're there for you. Dad just wants you to be safe.
2: There's a lot of things out there. And I think the, you know, there's less fear factory type things out there now they're used They're it's still there i still catch it and it just like makes me cringe
0: i think of like an older white dude in a tommy bahama shirt hosting a food travel show being like "Uh uh-oh about to eat some grubs wish me luck yes you're like yeah okay
2: and they're and and it's so funny how i hear these things and it just like courses through my body this like rage of like could you just keep that opinion to yourself? Like we didn't we didn't need that. Yeah. Um and the thing is is like, you know, we have the great loss of not having Anthony Bourdain anymore because he was the most amazing like pers- food, you know, journalist there was because he was so accepting of other cultures. There was none of that. It was all let's celebrate their food because People are worth celebrating. And so going back and just watching more Anthony Bourdain and and even if he's not eating bugs, just anything that seems weird to us and just seeing it as food it was just is such a beautiful
0: way of portraying it. Um, so we need more of that. So embracing different foods and cultures, it's not only a better, fuller way to experience what it means to be human, but also maybe we can stop the apocalypse by eating more grasshoppers. OK, onward. Can I ask you some Patreon questions? Yeah. Okay. But before we take questions from you, our beloved listeners, we're going to take a quick break for sponsors of the show. Sponsors? Why sponsors? You know what they do? They help us give money to different charities every week. So if you want to know where Ologies gives our money, you can go to AliWord.com and look for the tab Ologies Gives Back. There's like 150 different charities that we've given to already with more every single week. So if you need a place to go donate a little bit of money but you're not sure where to go, those are all picked by Ologists who work in those fields, and this ad break allows us to give a ton of money to them. So thanks for listening, and thanks, sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. So is my brain. Here's a thought experiment. Think of all the time that you spend just scrolling on things or not doing the things you wanna do. I know, time is the most valuable thing that you have. (laughs) boy let me tell you i had to learn this over time you know what helped? therapy therapy can help you figure out what matters most to you and how to prioritize it so that you like your life more and where i learned that was better help because yes I have been a client. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, I know how hard it is to get started. BetterHelp makes it very easy. It's entirely online, it's convenient, it's flexible. You take a quick questionnaire, they match you with a therapist. Instead of just Googling and trying to find someone with an opening, BetterHelp makes it very accessible and I like that. It's also more affordable than traditional therapy. And you can chat, you can text, you can do video calls, you can do phone calls. For some reason you are not vibing with your therapist, you can switch at any time, no extra cost, no drama. So let me tell you, Time is precious. Figure out where you want to spend yours. And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com ologies today to get 10% off your first month. So that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com ologies. It's about time. KiwiCo. You know, I love KiwiCo because making stuff and learning while you do it the best way. And KiwiCo is great. They deliver seriously fun learning for kids of all ages. They have these hands on projects and activities. And each month, kids receive crates that are engaging and that introduce them to things like science and technology or concepts and art. And I love that all the things you need are in there. So you're not going to be running out to the store to get pipe cleaners, you're not going to run out of glue or something. And KiwiCo tests these crates with professionals and with kids to make them the best they can be. There's so many different projects depending on what your kiddo's interested in, what age or grade level they're at. You can discover the science of magic. You can engineer a domino machine. These make great gifts. I have given these to so many kids and I also like that there's no commitment so you can pause or cancel crates anytime. So redefine learning with play. You can explore projects that build confidence and problem-solving skills with KiwiCo. Get 50% off your first month on any crate line at Kiwi. K-I-W-I-C-O with the promo code Ologies. So that's 50% off your first month at K-I-W-I-C-O dot promo code Ologies. They're going to love it. Did you know that Fast-Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? You can grow lemon, avocado, olive, or fig trees inside your home on top of the wide variety of house plants available. Fast-Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with their 30-day alive and thrive guarantee, they offer free plant consultation forever. Available 24-7, you can talk to a plant an expert about your soil type, your landscape design, and they curate thousands of plants. They got climates, they got locations. I am stoked about this because I've wanted a fig tree for so long and I'm like, I don't know where to get the fig tree. I'm not quite sure where to plant it in the yard. And I went to the Fast Growing Trees website and I was like, boom, I'm in zone 10. This fig tree would work well for me, done. And right now they have some of the best deals online, like up to half off on select plants. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code Ologies at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com using the code Ologies at checkout. Fastgrowingtrees.com, code Ologies. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything. But Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. Okay, your questions. Christopher Brewer wants to know, is bug protein the best protein for muscle recovery? Any idea?
2: Well, it is good for muscle recovery just because it has all of the essential amino acids. So it is a complete protein. So it's as good as any for muscle recovery.
0: Killer. Um, Jordan Wormy wants to know, highest protein insect, biggest bang for the buck in terms of eating the creepy crawlies. Jordan? Let's call him knocking, probably. Stay stay away from the C words. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Um,.
2: So I know the only thing I can really give you is from my specific research, but don't eat termites, don't farm termites, but termite soldiers. So it's really interesting that um, all the castes have their own kind of nutritional profile. And so the soldiers are the most protein rich compared to workers or the flying reproductives. Um, so anything in its more adult phase is probably going to have more protein. Oh. And anything in its younger phase, like a, a caterpillar or a beetle larva, is going to have more fat. Oh. So crickets are going to be more protein-rich, more likely than your mealworms. And mealworms are going to have more fat.
0: So from buttery to meaty. Exactly. Just like us. Because <laughs> yes, we get sinewy as yes, we get older. Right, exactly. Um, Rosaria Aneira wants to know, what are the best bug recipes? Ooh, um, I think that the best thing to do with bugs
2: for me to start is to put them in a taco um, mm-hmm. because in, in your taco, you have all the things you already love and are super familiar with. So your salsa and your guacamole and your sour cream. And so you just toast up your crickets with some chili powder, a little bit of lime and you put them in there and it's a wonderful place to start. I've
0: had them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's a to, good,
2: good crunch. And, yeah. It was yeah. a
0: great crunch. It's like a, a bunch of little soft shell crabs. Yeah. It was great. Thank you. Phil Torres for that, and for adding cricket powder to your Norwegian wedding cake, which was, I can attest, so good. It was dense, chewy, nutty. I very much regret not stuffing more of it into my purse. AJ Chlebnick wants to know, are there any insect fine dining experiences? There are. And I, um
2: so uh, in Brooklyn, Joseph Yoon of Brooklyn Bugs does amazing events, fine dining events. So that's where I've had like Um, his catering, I've had like scorpions on crab cakes, and he always is like garnishing with caviar and really trying to make it an elevated experience. So that would be one example. Um, And then in addition to Joseph Yoon and Brooklyn Bugs, um, Noma in the Netherlands, they have served it at their restaurant, but also they have research scientists specifically that are their chefs and research scientists that work with bugs.
0: Oh, my God. So easy to get a reservation there.
2: Oh, easy. Yeah. yeah. So check it out. Yeah. And tell them I sent you. Okay.
0: <laughs> P.S. Right after this interview, Julie texted me saying she meant Noma in Denmark, not the Netherlands. And I was like, girl, I got you. Don't worry. But either way, plan on a few months lead time and like $400 a person if you're going to go to Noma. Otherwise, you can Google your city plus edible insects. You're bound to find a few places. Unless you live somewhere that trends toward testicle festivals, in which case you can order your own ingredients or pencil in a grasshopper taco on your next big city business trip. Or just move. I don't know. Ellen Alexander wants to know, why would eating bugs be better than, say, a vegetarian or vegan diet? Assuming you're properly meeting your nutritional needs.
2: That's a really great qualification to say, assuming you're meeting your nutritional needs, because that's the hardest thing when you're when you're a vegetarian or vegan, people worry about their protein, but it's not protein as it's listed on a label, it's getting all of those essential amino acids. And so insects offer you all of those essential amino acids in a one-stop shop. So you don't have to make sure you're pairing all your foods correctly. Um, but the thing I think that they do offer is that if your vegetarian or vegan diet is really reliant on those processed foods, if you're eating fake foods that are derived from a, a vegetable. Um, the processing and energy that goes into that is extreme. So eating insects, they're they're a whole food as opposed to those processed foods. So that is another benefit of them.
0: Oh, great answer. Uh, Lauren Eckert wants to know: Given recent studies showing that insect populations are in massive decline mm-hmm. in some areas, do you think insect protein is still a sustainable option moving forward? I love that question. And and
2: the yes, I do think it is because if you're focused on eating the insects that are farmed for human consumption. So the cricket populations at Entomo Farms in Toronto, who's producing them, that's not at all affecting kind of global ecology and insect loss. Um, So for us here in the United States, eating the farmed insects is not a problem. Increasing insect consumption around the world where it might increase wild harvesting can potentially be problematic. But I don't think that's not going to be the reason why insects go into decline. It's more of the climate and, and the climate that change that we're inducing and, or at least contributing to.
0: Um, that's the problem. May Jernigan wants to know, I was told by an entomologist that goliath beetles taste a little nutty and also a bit like lobster and have a ton of protein. Is farming beetles like this feasible for future humans when resources are scarce? Those are some big, big ass beetles. Yeah, those are huge beetles. Goliath beetles, by the way, are like the size of a golf ball. They're so large that if one enters the room, it's rude not to say hello to it.
2: I don't know much about um, like farming Goliath beetles, but palm weevil beetles. So palm weevils are pretty large and their larvae are really large. And actually it's that larva is the most consumed around the world and one that you see the most on Fear Factor. So like it's like a two, three inch big fatty larva.
1: This is Fear Factor. This is what we do.
2: And those are already semi-cultivated. So how people around the world eat those is the beetle lays its eggs in a fallen palm branch. And so if you're going out and you want palm hearts or palm leaves or anything else from the palm tree that you use as a resource. You leave the branch on the ground and you know when you show up a couple months later that a beetle has probably laid its egg there and has, and now they're larva. So that's how it's consumed around the world. So it's already semi-cultivated. So taking that process and cultivating it is what people are really working on now, especially in parts of Africa that are Less food secure, where this is a natural resource for them, where if continually wild harvesting could be detrimental. So if they can start cultivating them um, in a in, you know, on site as a se- as opposed to semi cultivating um, is one way that they can then kind of control the reproduction of them and have that continual kind of abundance of them.
0: Right. Those things are just like little squirming hot dogs.
2: Yeah. They're, I always think of it as like, I haven't eaten one yet. I, full disclosure, I've not. It'll be hard for me. Like, um, but I've heard that, they, it, to me, they're just big packs of butter. They're just <laughs> fat, is what they look like to me. But then the like little beetle face of them apparently tastes like bacon. So.
0: Oh, a little crutch. So, yeah. yeah. Do so. people eat them raw?
2: Most right. people fry everything up a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So, and that's a nice thing. They f- fry up in their own oil. Like You don't even need to add anything, because they're just... Because yeah. they're butter balls. Because they're butter balls.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Molly Mickelson wants to know, what are some of the worst... Case scenarios, if someone were to eat a bug or bug while it's still alive and moving, I guess you wouldn't eat a chicken while it's alive, no, right,
2: right? Right. And the thing is, is it's going to die as soon as it hits your stomach acid. Like it's not and probably your esophagus swallowing is going to crush it. So it's not going to have much of a life once it hits your mouth. So it's no way to live. No. <laughs> Just um, go ahead. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Sophie Cousineau wants to know, a friend of mine is super allergic to all shellfish mm. and claims this means they're probably also allergic to insects. Does that make sense? Or are they just trying to find an excuse not to try eating bugs? <laughs> I think a lot of people had that question. Aki, Henry Strong, Ryan Moore, Gail Classens, and Sophie Cousineau specifically had that question, just for the record.
2: That's a really great question. And truthfully, we, we always say if you have a severe shellfish reaction, you, you're you going to want to be careful around insects. However, I am not sure it's ever triggered at least that same severe, like, anaphylactic response in somebody who had a shellfish allergy. The thing is, is people might have specific insect allergies. So if you're just a person who's allergic to everything, you might not want to try them, you know, because to me there's less concern of allergies because we do consume insect parts regularly. Like there are insect parts in all of our processed foods.
0: Yeah, how does that work? I know peanut butter's just oh, got a whole mess of, all of them.
2: Big yeah. Newtons <laughs> are just
0: like yeah. wasp central, right? Yes.
2: Yeah. So we already eat bugs. Um, so what that is is that if you're thinking about things on an industrial scale, I remember learning about this well before I studied eating bugs. I was in high school and somebody told me about a cockroach that fell into a vat of like custard for a boston cream donut at dunkin donuts Oh no! and, oh, and you just kind of have to scoop up everywhere around that cockroach and just like get because you're not going to throw out that hundred gallon vat of of custard like that's mm-hmm. not economical so that's why the fda says oh yeah some bug parts are fine because like we know you're going to try to get that whole cockroach out but you're probably going to miss a leg Come
0: on get oh oopsie daisy oh well
2: And so, so it's not economical to like start from scratch every time you think a bug contaminated it. So they let they've come up with a number of allowable insect parts, and yeah, peanut butter is one of them that has a lot. Fig Newtons because figs are just yeah they they the insects live in those figs, and you pick it, you eat it, and that's how probably most of our like ancestral insect consumption started. Like our non-human primate cousins eat lots of bugs just by eating fruit and leaves. So like we have that too so it means that we have the chitin we have a lot of the you know insects parts in our system and our system knows it's not harmful and it doesn't cause a reaction so we should be primed to where insects should not cause too many problems but everybody's individual people are allergic to all things these days
0: Olaf dachki wants to know if insects taste like nuts why don't we just eat nuts well i guess we do eat nuts we do eat nuts (laughs) um I would
2: I'm not exactly sure the I I would say two things one I'm not sure of the complete amino acid profiles of nuts I'm sure some of them have it but not all but two uh, nuts are pretty water intensive to cultivate so actually when it comes to water resources crickets and insects are probably a better um, better idea boom
0: good answer do we eat any spiders while we sleep
2: I don't know, I may I'm yes, I'm sure, but like probably not the quantity that people think like I don't think as many as the scare tactics say that we do, but
0: I could do a whole ten minute aside about the research I just did about swallowing spider statistics and the conspiracy theories behind it, but it boils down to it's a myth. spiders are terrified of you, they do not crawl in your mouth. You should be so lucky cause free snack come on, man. Oh, Greer Nelson has a question. How are the bugs that are sold as edibles killed?
2: Oh, that's a great question. So um, and this is something I was going to mention earlier is that one. So the insects will be fasted for a while. So they aren't fed. So they then clear out whatever was in their intestinal system so you get a get a clean bug and then most commonly they are then frozen so you put them into a freezing um chamber freezer i think we call them yeah. um and uh, but you put them in a freezer and basically they go into a natural state of hibernation they go into a torpor and then you keep them in there and then they will ultimately die um so that is pretty much the most common way that they are
0: are killed or are slaughtered um right right now which when you compare that to mammals and chickens yeah Oi. so it's more humane but is freezing feasible for the future
2: that's how it's done most commonly like most people starting out that everybody has a freezer it's pretty easy to get a freezer or whatever but as we scale up that's getting harder like th- you're losing efficiency if as you scale to large larger scales like and so farms are looking for other ways that are going to be less humane and so I want to like really kind of talk to the to the farmers and be like okay well that's fine if you're scaling up that way but can we make a certification or something that lets people know that insects are consumed in this more humane way when they are because that's how we're going to get the vegans like the vegans like we're on the same mission we really are and so fighting against each other is so counterproductive and so by having these sort of slaughter ethics I think is a way that we can get more of them on board and then we can have more of a symbiosis in our in our kind of goals instead of fighting with each other.
0: Yeah, I wonder if freezer, if if running freezers is energy. Yeah, I think that's part of it too,
2: is it a lot of energy? And I think it's the time, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, So I've definitely heard kind of whispers of we need to change this as we scale up. And I'm just like, but no, (laughs) because it's one of my favorite things to tell people, you know? (laughs)
0: <laughs> what about um, people thinking that they're like, I'm just going to farm my own crickets, kind of like having chickens in the backyard.
2: I So truthfully, I think that's the best idea. <laughs> I, oh. Yeah, I think um, I think for actual food security, the best thing to do is to control your own food. And they use the crickets use very little resources. There are like both mealworms and crickets um, like farm at home farms that you can kind of buy. (gasps) Yeah. Uh, Kickstarter right now. So live in farms. So L I V I N, I think Uh, live in farms, they just uh, launched a Kickstarter for their kind of smaller, easier to manage home farm for mealworms.
0: With our hive, you can grow healthy mealworms in a small space in your home.
2: And so to me, that's where the greatest impact is actually going to be.
0: Oh, that's kind of cool. I guess if you have dreams of, like, owning a goat farm, like, you could really scale it a lot smaller than that.
2: Yeah, exactly. Like if you're somebody who can, who's interested in backyard chickens who, you know, can commit the time to caring for them, uh, it's really... And the wonderful thing is they eat our food scraps. So, like, you're cooking, you cut the top off the carrot, and you give it to the crickets. Like... It's so great, and also eat the whole carrot. Don't get the processed baby carrots. Just cut, you know. Like, oh, that's a good point. Yeah, like <laughs> you just get like like let's like streamline our processing here, people. But so get the whole carrot, uh, uh, peel it, cut off the top, give it to your crickets, and you just like channeled your food stream a lot.
0: Right, and while they're peeling the carrots, they can always listen to podcasts. Exactly, that's what podcasts are for. Right. <laughs> um, last two questions I always ask: um, What's the shittiest thing about your job? What's the hardest thing? The most annoying thing? Uh, just, ugh. It could be anything.
2: <laughs> anything. The hardest thing, and this is, I think, it's so funny because I commiserate with so many academics on this, and I get it, I understand. But the thing is, is so our research is funded by grants, right? We get grants. They're like, Julie, that's a wonderful da- idea. Here's $20,000. It is so hard to use my money. Really? Like the the red tape through universities to have access. I do so much bureaucratic Paperwork to prove that I'm using the money how I said I was going to use it in my grant. Mm -hmm. It is a nightmare. And then the hardest thing I have to do is wire money overseas. Like I do work in Tanzania and so I need to send money. Oh, the university cannot figure that out. Like it is. And it's the same everywhere. I mean, some are better than others. um, But in general, it's really hard. Like you would think like, oh, you won this grant. You trust me to use my own money.
0: Mm -mm. Nope really that is the hardest part even if she's out there nibbling raw termites i imagine she enjoys being outside way more do you like the fieldwork aspect i do and that's
2: kind of what got me into this is i i always tell people that i'm happiest when i'm dirty like if i like that's i love like if i can't shower for the week cuz i'm camping like that that's where i'm happiest so so many microbe friends. So many microbe friends, yeah. <laughs> and uh, then if we're all not showering, we don't all realize we smell. So it, you know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Just acclimate the, acclimate the herd. Yeah. <laughs> um, what is the best thing about your job? What do you love so much? Or about entomophagy, anthropology? Right. right. Um, the best thing I love... My favorite thing. My
2: favorite thing about what I do about entomophagy anthropology is the fact that I get to teach it. I love talking about it. I love teaching my students. I love giving public talks, but I love being able to do so much science outreach and science communication on both human evolution and on food sustainability. And and col- cross cultural um, issues and biases, like I hit all of these issues that to me are so important with just this little topic of eating bugs, tiny well, tiny tiny tiny, tiny very tiny animals. Tiny <laughs> animals. <laughs> you're really great at what you do. This is, this is one of my favorite interviews. Yay! Thank so you cool. so
0: much. I'm now I'm slightly hungry for cricket. Right? I, I am. Yes, so much. Oh, you're welcome. Okay, so you can find Dr. Julie Lesnick at. Entomoanthro.org, And I'll put a link in the show notes. She's at Julie Lesnick on Twitter. And she and her awesome husband are launching a YouTube channel. I'm very excited for them. It launches in March. It's called Octopus and Ape. You can go to octopusandape.com now. You can also find them on YouTube. There's already a teaser up. So you can subscribe now and then you'll see the first episodes as they premiere. Already, it's adorable and super well done. So more links, of course. Always in the show notes and at allieward.com. Uh, Ologies is on Twitter and Instagram at Ologies. I'm at Allie Ward with one L on both. For Ologies merch like hats and totes and shirts and pins and beanies, you can go to ologiesmerch.com. You can also tag your photos of you in your merch with Ologies merch on Instagram. And then I creep those pictures and i repost them um thank you shannon feltis and bonnie dutch as always for managing that you guys are awesome thank you aaron talbert and hannah lippo who manage the very wonderful ologies podcast facebook group thank you to Jarrett sleeper of the my good bad brain podcast and just of general internet charm and hilarity for some editing help this week and as always to stephen ray morris for giving the episodes wings he pieces all the parts together for me he is also the host of The Percast, which is all about cats. He's going to like next week's feelingology, you guys. Get pumped. Um Now, if you listen to the end of the episode, you know I tell you a secret. This week, I have two secrets. One, beginning next week, there's going to be a few changes to ologies. Please listen to a bonus episode coming out in a few days to hear more about that. Also, another secret is I really want to make and play with slime. But number one, I don't have any children. And I just, I haven't found... A way to make this an activity that I somehow just found myself in the middle of also it seems like such a waste of glue but I will watch slime videos on Instagram and just be momentarily transfixed like what does the squish feel like what does it feel like I bet it's so good I don't know maybe I'll make the dream come true can I just be a person who's just an adult making slime for herself in an apartment can I do that I don't know maybe I will maybe I should live my dreams as should you Happy 2019. Be nice to people. Kick ass. Eat a bug if you want. Okay, bye bye. Hackadermatology. hobbyology, cryptozoology, lithology, and technology, meteorology.
1: Housewives were urged to save fats for the war effort. They got their reward in extra meat points, and they were also paid four cents a pound. Extra meat points.
0: The South Dakota Stories, Volume 7. My trip to South Dakota was the best summer ever. Now I don't need to go to Mars, because I've been to the Badlands. And I caught a bigger walleye than Dad when we went to the Missouri River. Then I rode my bike through these huge rocks called Needles. Ooh, I also saw my first herd of bison, even a fuzzy furry baby one. I can't wait to go back and see more. There's so much South Dakota, so little time.
1: Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000.